you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Strange things are supposed to take place in the library of Penn State University. Sometimes, glowing red eyes are seen peering out of the darkness. Shadowy figures flit back and forth between the rows of shelves. People sometimes report being pushed, or feeling like they're being strangled, or even that they feel stabbing pains. And occasionally, blood-curdling screams are heard. Sounds like the type of urban legends and ghost stories found on every college campus. And, in part, they are. But, in part, the stories are also sort of true. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 67, The Murder of Betsy Ardsma. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. story is one I initially heard when I was in college. Well, I guess it was actually an urban legendified version, and as it turns out, nearly all the particulars in the version I heard were wrong. A friend of mine was going to school at Penn State, though, so a year or two later I heard another, more accurate version. In both versions I heard, though, it was said that serial killer Ted Bundy was responsible. Of course, this is complete bull. He was in Pennsylvania True when he went to Temple University in Philadelphia. But by the time that this murder happened, he was on the other side of the country in Washington State. But as he did kill mainly college-age girls, and Betsy Ardsma did sort of look like his quote-unquote type, I guess I can see where that legend came from. This is also the most recent story I've covered. Recent enough that the case is still open recent enough that the murderer might still be alive. One of a number of predominantly Dutch-settled towns in Ottawa and Allegan counties on the west side of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, the town of Holland was established in 1847 by Albertus van Rolde and other Dutch Calvinists fleeing the poverty that at that time was afflicting their homeland. Notable for having heated sidewalks, which sounds pretty nice on a winter day, the town is a pretty quiet place with, few, with a few college campuses. It was here that, on July 11, 1947, Elizabeth Ruth Ardsma was born to Richard and Esther Ardsma. Betsy, as she was known, was socially conscious and spent some time teaching inner-city kids in Grand Rapids, 
and also on the Navajo Reservation in the Southwest. Betsy graduated fifth in her high school class, and when the time came for her to go to college, she chose Hope College in her hometown, where she started taking pre-med classes. But when she transferred to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in 1967, she changed her major to English, which by all accounts she seems to have felt more comfortable with. It was in her final year there that she met David Wright, a pre-med student who was to become her boyfriend. He later attended the medical program at Penn State Hershey. Betsy, whose original intention was to join the Peace Corps after graduation, decided to transfer once more, this time to the main campus of Penn State and State College, Pennsylvania, to attend grad school. This was in September of 1969. Her parents were glad that she left Ann Arbor, since there had been five murders of young women there since 1967. These were college students Mary Flesher, Joan Shell, Jane Mixer, and eventually a 16-year-old girl named Marilyn Skelton, followed by a 13-year-old girl named Dawn Basom. Arrested for the murders was 22-year-old John Norman Collins, a fellow college student. Though he had been apprehended on July 30th, the fear and nervousness remained in the area. Collins is still alive, by the way, and is incarcerated at Marquette Branch Prison in northern Michigan. Following further investigation, in 2005, another man named Gary Leiterman, who would have been 26 at the time, was found guilty of the murder of Jane Mixer. Fast forward about two months to November 1969. Betsy had just spent Thanksgiving with David. She took a bus back to State College on Thursday evening, as she had a paper to complete for one of her English classes. The next day, November 28th, Betsy and her roommate, Sharon Brandt, went to the Petit Library on campus about 4 o'clock p.m. Ardsma went to see one of her professors, Harrison Meserol, who had an office in the library. At about 4.30, she was seen by a fellow student, Marilee Erdley, near the card catalog. She then descended into the course section of the library's holdings to retrieve a book. Library supervisor Dean Brongart was making his rounds of that level of the library before he left for the day, and at about 4.45, there were only six people present there. A historian named Richard Allen, an African student named Joao Wolfinda, the aforementioned Marilee Erdley, and in that level of the corps was a girl in a red dress and a white turtleneck, Betsy, and a few rows over, two male students engaged in conversation. A few moments later, Richard Allen was using the photocopier when he heard a man and a woman talking. The conversation wasn't elevated or apparently in any way agitated. Shortly afterwards, there was a crashing sound, and then a male who Allen said, quote, looked like a student, came rushing out of the corps. Marilee Erdley and Joao Wafinda later said that, the, that a man with blonde hair, approximately six feet tall, wearing khaki pants, a sports jacket, tie, plaid shirt, and possibly glasses, the two disagreed on this, passed them. Presumably, this was the same person seen by Richard Allen. Keeping his right arm at his side, he gestured toward the doorway and said, someone had better help that girl. He took Erdley into the core and showed her where Betsy was lying on the floor between two rows of books. Then he vanished. Wolfinda well, was, was suspicious of this man and followed him up the stairs, but the mystery man outpaced him and disappeared in the direction of the recreation building, 
a gymnasium. Several shelves were dislodged when Betsy collapsed, causing the crashing noise heard by Richard Allen. When coming upon the body, Erdley at first thought Betsy had had a seizure or fainted, and began to yell for help. Eventually, her cries were answered by a member of the library staff, who ran upstairs and had receptionist Elsa Lyle call the Rittenor Health Center on campus. Soon, paramedics George Miller and Gerald Titus arrived. When they arrived, they found a small group of people crowded around where Betsy lay, attempting to resuscitate her. In fact, it's said that Erdley was so worked up over her discovery that initially, the paramedics believed she was the one who required help. At any rate, one of the two thought he detected a pulse, and so Betsy was loaded onto an ambulance and brought to the hospital. Here, Miller and Titus were still attempting to revive the girl via CPR, when the attending physician, Dr. Scott Pilgrim, his real name by the way, noticed blood oozing out of the girl with each compression, and realized her injuries were much more severe than initially thought. He discovered a single stab wound to the chest, and despite efforts, he declared her dead at 519. Later, a more thorough examination of Betsy's body by pathologist Thomas Magnani determined that the single inch-wide wound penetrated her breastbone, stabbing her directly in the heart and cutting her carotid artery as it did so. The end, therefore, likely came swiftly, and it's very likely that she was on death's door, or even dead already, by the time Marilee Early was led to her body by the mystery man. Some petechial bruising on Betsy's chest was noted. Initially, police theorized that possibly the killer wore a large ring or something that had caused the bruises. They might have also been caused by the CPR performed in an attempt to revive her. He also noticed that there was some slight bruising and scrapes around her ear, but he dismissed this as very likely having resulted from the fall against the bookshelves. As Magnani said years later, quote, There was nothing in the results that suggested a struggle of any kind. There were no defensive wounds, and he retrieved no material from under her fingernails. He believed that she likely knew her killer, or that she was totally surprised by them. He also said that, quote, the guy knew what he was doing in striking a single blow that would result in death quickly. The investigation into the first murder at Penn State since Rachel Taylor was killed in 1941, which is another case I might cover, I'll probably cover eventually, was led by Lieutenant William Kimmel and Sergeant George Keebler of the Pennsylvania State Police. The deck was stacked against them, however, as since no one suspected foul play at first, and police therefore weren't notified immediately, library staff thought nothing of cleaning up the crime scene and compromising the, invest the eventual investigation. Around the time of the murder, between 4.30 and 5.15, fully 440 people had entered and or left the library complicating the investigation still further. Around 8 o'clock that night, Dean Brungart was notified that there had been a murder in the library. I wonder if he realized that the victim was the girl in the red dress he had seen just before he left. The state police soon established temporary headquarters in the Balk building on campus, staffed by Kimmel, Keebler, and about 15 other officers. This headquarters was only fully abandoned in 1972, although by then, only two officers were kept there. The police installed cameras in the aisle where Betsy had been killed, hoping to maybe catch the murderer returning to the scene of the crime, as they often do, as well as elsewhere in the library. 
Initially, investigators began looking through journals and diaries kept by Betsy, but these provided no leads. She wasn't involved in any sort of suspect activity, and she was apparently a model student. David Wright eventually came under suspicion, as significant others almost always do when their partners wind up dead. He was definitively cleared, however, when an alibi was provided and then confirmed by several other people. But this hasn't stopped his name from still being thrown around on web forums and the like as a suspect. While at the dorm room, they spoke to Sharon Brandt to determine if there had been anything going, anything unusual going on lately. She said that recently, Betsy had lost her key, and that's why she had to accompany her to the library that afternoon, since she would be unable to get back into her dorm room unless Sharon was present. The story began appearing in newspapers the next day, in some areas making secondary headlines below only the murder spree of the Manson family whose trial had begun only a week and a half before. One interesting clue discovered by police was a spray of blood found on the wall of the stairway leading up. The blood was tested and found to match Betsy's blood type, which made it likely that the stains had been left by the killer as he made his escape. This was also thought to suggest that the man who had led Marilee early to the body, the man who had been followed by Joao Alfinda, had been the killer. Several months later, in the spring of 1970, another clue was revealed when a young boy accompanying his mother to work was waiting outside near the recreation building. Underneath a bush outside the building, the boy discovered a knife which was covered in rust and had apparently lain outside for quite some time. The knife was found to match the size and shape of the wound that had been found in Betsy's chest admirably well, and it was almost certainly the murder weapon. If you'll remember, the man Wafinda followed outside disappeared in this direction. The weapon had lain out in the open for far too long for any te real testing to be done, and at any rate, there was little testing that could have been done in 1970. The weapon was turned over to campus security, but its current whereabouts are unknown. Several assaults and sexual offenses had, were reported in the year leading up to Betsy's murder, and it was said that the library, at the time, had somewhat of a reputation for being a part of campus unaccompanied girls were reluctant to walk near. The investigations had already been complicated by the inadvertent tampering with the crime scene that had gone on, and when a blacklight was shined in the area where the murder had taken place, another complication presented itself. Semen stains, or at any rate, stains of something that shone fluorescent under the light, were found virtually everywhere in the core area of the library where the crime had occurred with stashes of por pornography, both gay and straight, being found all over. One story of assault was thought by the victim to have possible bearing on the murder. A grad student acting as a teaching assistant for, for anthropology professor Dr. Charles Kolb recounted how a male student became obsessed with her, spending time visiting her during office hours and generally being creepy. Creepy, to the extent that Dr. Cole began to stay outside her office while the student was there, and to walk her home on several occasions. She said that one night, the student followed her home and exposed himself. Oddly, she said she didn't find the exposure to be particularly sexual. She was later approached by another professor, who had the same male student in a class, and said that he was planning on murdering a female teacher, and as she was the only female teacher that he had... Well, 
In later years, she said, she had heard that he was diagnosed as a schizophrenic and had to be committed. But she always wondered whether that student could have become similarly obsessed with Betsy, who was also rumored to, have, to be working as a teaching assistant. There were also a few other attacks on female college students around the same time, which attracted the attention of the investigators into the Ardma murder. The first of these came on November 24th, a few days before. Kathleen Yalonis, a 22-year-old from Strongsville, Ohio, was badly beaten and found lying unconscious underneath some bushes and against a brick wall at Ohio University in Athens. She had been beaten so severely that she had to undergo surgery and did not fully recover consciousness for almost two weeks. On November 29th, the day after Betsy's murder, 20-year-old Janet Weiler was stabbed in the throat and chest as she was walking near Johnson House on the campus of Oberlin College, again in Ohio. Despite the seriousness of her injuries, Janet recovered and was released from the hospital on December 10th, although she was unable to speak for several days. A steak knife that had been used to stab her and a glove presumably worn by the attacker were discovered, though the assailant never was. And on December 2nd, an 18-year-old student at Pennsylvania's Clarion University, Mary Ann Berry, was found in her bed in a girl's dormitory, slashed on the throat and abdomen. A razor was found lying on the floor nearby. No other student saw or heard anything, and police said there was no apparent evidence of an intruder. And by December 17th, Barry, who had since dropped out of school, admitted that the wounds were self-inflicted. The investigation was also somewhat hampered by the university itself. They were monitoring the investigation closely, eager to minimize any damage done to the reputation of the school or its faculty. This also included limiting comments made by faculty about the murder. Library supervisor Dean Brungart recounted an incident in which he was almost fired after a photograph of him pointing out the spot where Betsy had been killed appeared in the newspaper. Eventually, with Penn State dissatisfied with the outcome of the state police's investigation, University President Eric Walker and Chief of Campus Security William Pelton launched their own investigation into the crime. This produced no additional leads, however. Rumors ran rampant about the case, probably spurred on by the fact that as it was still a holiday, relatively few students were even present at the time it took place. One rumor was that Betsy was involved with nude modeling. This seems unlikely given what we know of Betsy's personality, and at any rate, there apparently weren't any student nude models anyway. One had it that she was the first victim of a serial killer who was killing victims in alphabetical order. Another rumor involved the possibility that Betsy was working as an undercover informant for the police, working to combat the campus drug trade. The state police, in fact, did employ some undercover officers masquerading as Penn State students. It's not quite clear exactly where this rumor came from. There's the fact that one of the first few state troopers responding, Mike Simmers, was one of those undercover campus officers. Maybe that gave rise to it. And it's true that there was a classmate of Betsy's who had been discharged from the military for drug possession a few years later, and who was said to be thought of as a suspect in the killing. But so far as is known, this rumor is untrue. In the years after the murder, there were a few bizarre incidents. 
Derek Sherwood notes that Dean Brungart claims to have been followed through the library one day in 1970 by a man who he identified as one of the two he saw conversing immediately before Betsy was killed. On February 22, 1977, a letter was received at the university. The letter was addressed to the campus police. Immediately after the Yardsma murder, Penn State established a proper police force, rather than merely having campus security with the state police covering more important matters. More specifically, it was addressed to Sergeant George Keebler at the Balk building. This address was wrong in several regards, as Keebler was a state police officer and not employed by the university, and the office in the Balk building was long since closed. The letter had been sent from Atlanta, Georgia, and was written in an odd handwriting style. It was either shaky, as if it were someone who had difficulty writing, or was someone purposely trying to disguise their handwriting. The letter read, You never did catch the guy who killed that cunt in the library back in 70-71, did you? Well, fuck you all. Here's a present for Washington's birthday you'll never forget. The letter was examined for fingerprints, but none could be retrieved. Years later, on December 3, 1994, a few days after the 25th anniversary of the slang, the library supervisor, who by that time was Tom Whalen, was again making his rounds when he found a burning candle in the aisle where Betsy had been killed. Around the candle were scattered old newspaper clippings about the murder, and in red ink on the floor was written, R.I.P. Betsy Ruth Ardsma, July 11, 1947, to November 28, 1969. P.S. I'm back. A similar one, with the message written in blue, was discovered five years later, but it was in the wrong aisle. Both were presumed to be student pranks, presumably by someone with access to a file of contemporary news reports that were once kept in the library. As to suspects, there's no shortage of them, but very few have any real substance. Some, which unfortunately are some of the ones with the most presence among web searches, are plainly ludicrous. Many suggest the Zodiac Killer, based primarily, I suppose, on the similarity between the sketches of the probable murderer, the person I'll call the someone better help that girl man, and some sketches of the Zodiac. It's pointed out that the timing of Betsy's murder coincides with the time that the Zodiac wasn't active in California. But given what we understand about serial killers, is it really at all likely that a man who's shooting people in California would come east and murder an apparently random 22-year-old in the library of Penn State? It's not really even worthy of consideration. Neither is Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who himself is a, was a Zodiac suspect, and years later was claimed to have been seen in the library the day before wearing an Afro wig. And as I alluded to earlier, Ted Bundy is sometimes connected with it as well. It's possible that the apparent perpetrator's holding of his right arm against his side conjured up images of Bundy's famed broken arm ruse. And even John Norman Collins, the Ann Arbor murderer mentioned earlier, was suspected of following Betsy to Penn State and making her one of his victims. But of course, that was impossible, as he was already in police custody at the time of Betsy's murder. Most of these probably come from the same place as the rumors. When there's little discussion about the case, speculation runs, runs wild, often of the most ludicrous kind. 
Of actual legitimate suspects with real substance, there's really only four, only one of which, actually, is even really plausible in my opinion. The first, and the most unlikely, is a student who now does classified government work, and is identified by Derek Sherwood in his book on the case under the pseudonym Earl Martin. Martin's real name can be found on the internet if one digs around long enough, but I'll keep with a pseudonym. He was very much the rural type, way into hunting, guns, and the like, and went out for coffee with Betsy at least once. He was questioned during the initial investigation, but was later cleared and no more thought given to his guilt. Years later, long after he graduated and served in the military, he was given a polygraph as part of his testing for government clearance. He failed this polygraph, getting hung up on a question concerning whether he had ever been involved in a felony investigation. He apparently mentioned that his name had come up in 1969 during the Betsy Ardsma investigation, and this information was relayed to the Pennsylvania State Police, who brought him back in for questioning. The state police, however, thought his explanation was satisfactory and released him. And others seemed to have a good deal of circumstantial evidence suggesting his guilt at first. Robert Durge was an English professor who had originally taught at Michigan University in Ann Arbor, the same college Betsy graduated from, and he had actually transferred to Penn State at about the same time that Betsy moved there. He had suddenly left Penn State one day, around the time of the murder, saying that he could no longer stay there, gathering up his family and returning to Michigan. He died there in an automobile accident on December 20th, 1969, crashing into a bridge support along I-96 near Lansing. It was believed that his death might have been a suicide. Durge at first appeared an exceedingly viable suspect, but it was soon determined that he and his family were already back in Michigan at the time of Betsy's killing. At one point, Durge had even been a suspect in the Ann Arbor murders that had been mentioned a few times already. A 40-year-old man named Bill Spencer also became a suspect. His wife Nancy, considerably younger than her husband, was a student at Penn State, and Bill, an artist, had been offered a job teaching sculpture at the college. The two lived in an area outside of town where many other faculty members lived. Quite a few of these other professors said that Bill was a bit odd, and even seemed unnerving at times. About a month after the murder, at a faculty Christmas party, Bill was heard saying that he had killed Betsy, that she had modeled nude for him, coinciding with some of the rumors circulating in the days following the murder, and furthermore, that he had special forces training and that she was easy to kill. In 1970, the teaching offer was rescinded after Bill was arrested on drug charges, and after Nancy's graduation, the two moved to Virginia. Bill Spencer died in 1984 in North Carolina. There's no evidence that the two even knew each other at all. However, as his wife's family was from Atlanta, it's believed that there could be a possibility that he wrote the 1977 letter. The most probable suspect in many people's minds, myself included, is Rick Hefner, originally mentioned to the police by Sharon Brandt, who said he had visited who said he had visited Betsy a few times. She obviously found him suspicious enough to mention to the police but never specified exactly why she found him suspicious. He was a geology grad student, originally from Lancaster. When Hefner was interviewed by policeman Ken Schleiden, 
he stated that he had dated Betsy a few times. The question of him dating her is problematic to some, especially as she and David Wright were in a serious relationship to all accounts. In fact, David said he planned on proposing to her in December, contrary to rumors that she broke off an engagement. But it doesn't seem it doesn't particularly seem that these dates, or the one with Earl Martin, were anything really serious. And anyway, think of how the average 22-year-old is. Maybe she just wasn't 100% sure she wanted to get married yet. Later, Lauren Wright said that at about 6 p.m. on the evening of November 28th, a flustered Hefner had showed up at his, at his residence, asking the professor if he had heard about the murder that happened in the library, and stating that it was a girl that he had dated. How did Hefner, within an hour of the murder, not only know a murder had occurred, but who the victim was? Remember, the first press reports about the killing did not come out until the next day, and it wasn't until Betsy was at the hospital, shortly after 5 o'clock, that it was even known for sure that she had been murdered. The only possible issue with this statement that I have is that it's questionable why Professor Wright didn't come out with a story at the time, but only years later. A graduate of Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Rick Hefner formerly worked at the North Museum, operated by that college. Here, he got the reputation of being extremely knowledgeable in his field. There were rumors of his having stolen mineral specimens from the museum, however, as well as accusations he had attempted to molest young boys, although there were no formal charges. In 1965, he began attending Penn State, doing some geology fieldwork in Death Valley, California. In 1968, while in California, he reportedly began acting rather creepy around a young woman who eventually left to return to Brown University in Rhode Island. She said that one night, while she was there, Rick showed up at her dorm room, having traveled cross-country to go profess his love to a girl that he barely knew. She threatened to call the police, and Rick left. Then he became embroiled in the investigation into the murder of Betsy Ardsma, and the incident recounted by Professor Wright occurred. He seemed pretty eager to share with fellow students about his connection with Betsy as well. Then mineral specimens began to disappear from the museum at Penn State, just as they had at the North Museum. He graduated Penn State, barely, by all accounts, in 1972, and worked a variety of jobs before being offered a position as, cura as curator at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History. He was preparing to accept this when, in August 1975, he was charged with molesting two boys. In the end, the charges were dropped, but he still spent two weeks in jail on a contempt charge. The Los Angeles offer was rescinded. He then became embroiled in a, in a lengthy legal proceeding, accusing the Lancaster City Police of misconduct in the case. After this, the allegations of molestation continued, and Rick became paranoid. He began carrying around a sharpened screwdriver at all times, punctured the tires of neighbors he had disputes with, got in fights, and threatened people on numerous occasions. The whole story of his annex is a long one, and this is only an abbreviated version. Derek Sherwood, in his book on the Ardsma murder, gives an extremely thorough rundown of the various allegations and legal troubles. Rick Hefner died in 2002. The question of whether he was, indeed, 
guilty of murder remains unresolved. A half century after the event, the murder of Betsy Ardsma remains as much a mystery as it ever was, and it's really the fault of nothing more than circumstance, and the fact that it wasn't initially known that a crime had occurred. So the isolation of the crime scene, so necessary to a proper investigation, didn't occur until later, until it was already contaminated and any evidence concealed. The story has since passed into the realm of urban legend, with students hearing the tale of the murder in the library, the ghost stories supposedly associated with it described in the introduction, and many not even aware that the incident actually happened. The state police were relatively tight-lipped about the case for years. The last several years have seen more discussion of the murder, probably due to books being written about the case and a new investigators having taken over the case. But by this point, 51 years on, it may be too late. The perpetrator very well might be dead by this point, as several suspects already are. And it may, very well, remain unsolved. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram, at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. And I swear I'm intending on getting another episode on there. I've kind of been slacking on that lately. I apologize. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time... This is Andrew, signing off. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.